Please turn in your Bibles to Micah, Micah chapter 3, and I'll begin the reading this morning in verse 9 of Micah 3. This is God's Word. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, Neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. It's not unusual at this time of year, to hear from the prophet Micah. But when you think of the prophet Micah and the Advent season and the Christmas season, you typically think of chapter 5 and verse 2. There it says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Very significant prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. If you'll remember, that was the prophecy that enabled the wise men and King Herod to determine where the Messiah was to be born. And when we look at lists of Old Testament prophecies, and there are so many prophecies in the Old Testament that predicted so many details about the life of the Messiah to come. It is amazing to us to think that 700 years before the birth of Christ, the very location of his birth is given clearly in God's word. But really, if this is God's word, it isn't all that amazing. Not only does God know the future, but God plans the future. So the fact that he could dictate the place of the birth of the Messiah isn't all that amazing if you assume that this is God's word. But what I'm hoping to do over the next 
couple of weeks as we lead up to Christmas and our celebration of Christmas this year is to look at that prophecy from chapter 5, verse 2, and look at it in its context. It's always a very rich thing to take a familiar verse, especially if you're thinking of a verse from the minor prophets of the Old Testament, and look at it in its context. And I think what you'll find out as we look more depth, look in more depth at the context of the prophecy of Bethlehem as the birthplace of the Christ, we're all going to see that there are far richer promises here and far more amazing things revealed than just the location of the birth of the Messiah. In these middle chapters of Micah, the prophet reveals that the coming of the Messiah will result in a radical transformation of the world as we know it. Somehow, the coming of the Messiah would result in a new and far more glorious Jerusalem. And the kingdom of God would be established on earth. One commentator describes that new Jerusalem in this way. He says, it will be the center of global justice and righteousness and of international peace and prosperity. That's what this Messiah would come to establish. I've always thought that it's good that our Advent and Christmas season follows on the heels of our election season. As the scriptures would say, after darkness, light. Because we do need to know how to deal with the despair and disappointment and disillusionment and cynicism, no matter whether your candidate won or not. Because that's what seeps into our bones as we watch our civil and spiritual leaders not only being effective, but so many of them being corrupt. First, a little bit about Micah. And this will only take a very short moment because I know almost nothing about Micah. The book that we have in Scripture tells us one thing about him. Well, actually two things about him. First of all, that he's from a town called Morasheth. And if you've never heard of Morasheth, don't feel bad because we don't know anything about Morasheth except we know generally where it was located and we know it was a tiny little podunk town in Judah. So he was a country boy, but he had been called by God to be a prophet. And somehow he was a prophet in Jerusalem with the ear of the kings. He, of course, prophesied to the southern kingdom. At this time, Israel is divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom generally called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. And so Micah was a prophet to Judah, and he was a prophet during the reigns of Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. This is about 700 years before Christ is born. Matter of fact, it's interesting to note, and it does help you as you study the book of Micah, to understand that Micah was part of a dynamic duo of prophets, so to speak. He was kind of the Robin to the Batman of Isaiah. He was, well, probably Peter and Paul would be a better example. But anyway, he Isaiah was the, the, the dominant prophet. And matter of fact, during the life and reign of Hezekiah, Micah's name doesn't appear, but what's interesting is you find out some of the things that Isaiah says are actually 
things that Micah said first. And so Micah and Isaiah were ministering to the kings of Judah during that era. And so uh, uh, we have Micah and Isaiah being uh, co-belligerents for the truth against the powers that be for much of their ministry. This was a really dark and foreboding time in the time of both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Israel and Judah. Assyria was going through a serious revival of power. And it was as it was gaining more and more power as the bully in the Middle East of that time, it began to expand its boundaries. The heart of Assyria is, if you look at a political map today, is where the boundary of Iraq and Iran is today. But it was, it, during this period of time, it was growing in power and is beginning to expand particularly to the west. And the kings of Assyria had the goal of taking over the entire Middle East. And so as they advanced westward, they crushed every country in their wake. The Assyrians of all the world empires has always been known as one of the most vicious and the most cruel. I won't even go into the details of how they treated their conquered foes. But what's interesting is how Micah speaks of the advance of this dark empire. Go back to chapter 1. This is the only part. The very first part of chapter 1 is the only part of the book of Micah that is addressed to the northern kingdom of Israel. Because as Micah was beginning his ministry, the northern kingdom was in its final days. He didn't have much to say to Israel because Israel wasn't going to be around for very long. But this first part of chapter 1 is the only part that applies to the northern kingdom. And this is what it says beginning in verse 2. Hear, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from His holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of His place, and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under Him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down from a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel." What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria, the northern kingdom, Samaria was the capital, a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. He's prophesying what was about to happen to the northern kingdom of Israel at the hands of the Assyrians. Isaiah, his buddy, the other prophet, would say that Assyria was, according to the word of God, the rod of my anger. As wicked as Assyria was, God used Assyria to bring judgment upon his own people. In 722 B.C., Assyria destroyed Israel, scattered Tens of thousands of people who remained there. And Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, was never known of again. But the rest of the prophecy, the rest of Micah, is addressed to his home country, Judah. In chapter 3, verse 9, that first verse we read, it refers 
to the heads of the house of Jacob, the rulers of the house of Israel. But by this point, by the time you get to chapter 3 in Micah, when he talks about Israel, he's talking about Judah. Because now Judah is the only remnant of what was Israel. And so everything else from the very first part of chapter 1 applies to Judah. And he's talking to, it's interesting, Judah was going through a time of somewhat of peace and prosperity during most of Micah's life and ministry. But it was a peace and prosperity. It was partying on the verge of destruction because Assyria, kept once they had destroyed Israel, had kept moving through the area. God intervened a couple of times, but basically Assyria was knocking on the door. And Judah, as Micah would be sent to tell them, was really no better in the eyes of God than her rebellious sister Israel. And so here, beginning in chapter 3, verse 9, you have what is really an indictment against Judah. The language here, and the prophets often do this, it's interesting, the prophets use the language of a judicial indictment, actually formal language that would be used in a courtroom. But the courtroom here is the courtroom of heaven. And God is seated behind the bar. God is the judge. And so when he says in verse 9, hear this, similar to the bailiff standing up in court and saying, hear ye, hear ye, the court is now in session. You have a summons from God the judge. And he's about to lay out the charges against his own people. He gives a summary of the charges first by saying they detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. They detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. That's a summary accusation. Justice is an important concept to understand from a biblical perspective. The prophets talked a lot about justice. We use the word justice, I think, in kind of a minimalist way. When we talk about justice, we usually think of a courtroom. And when justice is done, that means that the guilty are punished. They're given what they deserve. And the innocent are protected and acquitted. That's what we consider to be justice. And certainly the biblical concept of justice includes that. But it also, when you talk about justice in terms of Scripture, it also refers to protecting the rights of others. And particularly when you're talking about leaders, whether civil leaders or spiritual leaders, they were expected to protect the rights of the people, especially for the most powerless among the people. The image is of a shepherd. That's always been it's the, the, the issue, the image of a Leader in the Old Testament and New Testament, the image is always that of a shepherd. One who is a protector of the rights and the privileges of God's people. The Ten Commandments are given, when you think about it in that way, in a sense like a bill of rights. The Ten Commandments protect our right to life. The Ten Commandments protect our right to our property. The Ten Commandments protect our right to our reputation, our right to our family. 
And in a biblical society, those rights must be protected, especially for those who had no power in and of themselves. And that's why when the Bible talks about justice, it very quickly will refer to the widows and the orphans and the immigrant and the poor. Because these were people that, especially in that society, had no other recourse except the leadership to protect their rights. They were vulnerable. And so, inherent in what God expects of leaders is not just to punish the guilty and acquit the innocent, but to protect the rights, God-given rights, spelled out in God's Word for God's people. It's interesting that when we think of what Christmas is all about, we often go to Philippians chapter 2. And there you have that glorious picture of Jesus Christ, who, as Paul says, emptied himself of all the divine privileges and rights of being the Son of God enthroned in heaven, so that he could come, give up those rights, even the right to life itself, the right to fellowship with God, so that we might be given these rights, even though we are sinners. And so, when you know what God expects of those in position of authority and leadership, it you, you throw up that light in the darkness of what was going on in Judah in the days of Micah is all that more stark. These leaders didn't just ignore justice, they detested justice, Micah says. And we find out quickly it's because of their greed. Not only were they not protecting the rights of others and acquitting the innocent and punishing the guilty, they are actually acquitting the guilty and punishing the innocent so that they could line their own pockets, so that they could gain personally, physically, financially, materially themselves. In verse 11, Micah breaks down the charges in regard to all three branches of the government in Judah. He talks about the rulers, which would make up the king and his court, the priests, and the prophets. Keep in mind that Israel and Judah were theocracies. They were both church and state. So when I talk about leaders, I'm not just talking about civil leaders. I'm talking about, even what we'll see in a moment, primarily spiritual leaders. And it says here, Micah says, by the word of God, that the rulers and the judges were for sale. Look at verse 11. They were rendering judgments in favor of the highest bribe. And as a result, the wealthy, those who had wealth, were using those in authority, the rulers and the judges, in order to steal what belonged to others. Micah refers to, go back to chapter 2. He describes this in the beginning of the chapter. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man and his inheritance. Over in chapter 3, verse 10, he makes another reference to it says that they build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. They had 
beautiful new buildings, but they were built on the blood of those who were the oppressed, the poor, the powerless, the vulnerable, the ones they were meant to be protecting. It's hard not to immediately have an image in your head of Ahab whining as he coveted the vineyard of Naboth and his wife Jezebel going out and using the courts, using the halls of government to steal the, the vineyard from Naboth and having Naboth put to death. Murder. Legal murder, but still murder. This was the kind of thing going on in Judah. But even worse than the rulers and the judges doing these kinds of things was the fact that the priests and the prophets were prostituting themselves for the sake of their wealthy supporters. It says in verse 11, they were practicing divination. In other words, giving supposed word from God. They were practicing divination for money. Again, back in chapter 2, he describes their ministry, quote-unquote, in verse 11. This is speaking of the prophets. It says, If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. Eat, drink, and be merry. That was the message of the prophets to the wealthy that were supporting them. And then over in chapter 3, beginning in verse 5, Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. They preach those who line, preach for those who line their pockets and against those who don't support them. That's the kind of spiritual leadership that Judah had in their day. Jeremiah would later talk about these kind of prophets saying they proclaim peace, peace when there is no peace. And again, remember that the kingdom of Assyria was lurking right outside the borders of Judah. The pulpits of the land were being sold to the highest bidder, just like the courts of the king and the courts of the judges. You think about how our American government came into existence. It was designed by people with a biblical worldview. I'm not going to argue who was Christians and who weren't. That's for the Lord to decide. But they definitely had a biblical worldview. And because they understood the depravity of man and his natural state, and even those of us in a redeemed state still struggling with sin, because they knew the sin of mankind, they established three branches of government the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch, and they did it as a check upon our sin, and particularly upon the sin of the leaders. But what happens when all three branches are corrupt? What happens when all three branches are selfishly and greedily watching each other's backs? And it's even worse when you think of the state in Judah, because in Judah it was a theocracy, as I said, and it wasn't just the civil rulers, but it was the spiritual rulers that were in cahoots together. The kings, the priests, and the prophets were all corrupt. And what hope did the people have? 
What's amazing is that in spite of all of this, they still claimed God's blessing. Look at verse, the end of verse 11. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. It's a very dangerous thing in the eyes of God to claim His blessing while you're refusing to submit to His word. Reminds me of that old Bob Dylan song, With God on Our Side. The lyrics of that song go through how, particularly in our own country, leaders have done things that at least Dylan considered wrong and unjust, claiming to have God on our side. And then he ends it with these words. He says, In many a dark hour I've been thinking about this, that Jesus Christ was betrayed by a kiss But I can't think for you. You'll have to decide whether Judas Iscariot had God on his side. Judas thought that he had God on his side. The Pharisees thought that they had God on their side. We all have to always be asking the question, when we say as a country in God we trust, do we as a country truly stand behind that? Whose side is God on? I do believe, unlike the cynical age in which we live, I do believe that it's possible for those who lead in civil government, as well as those who lead in the church, to lead with God on their side, as long as they're on his side. The problem is that invariably, sinners, when they get into authority, they try to claim God is on their side. Well, in verse 12, you have the sentence. It began with the summons. Hear ye, hear ye. Then you have the accusations. Now you have the sentence. And it's a shocking glimpse of the future. Looking at Mount Zion as a long-forgotten kingdom. In Jerusalem, there were two mountains. And mountains used in a real loose sense of the word. They weren't really high mountains. But they were hills anyway. Two hills in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was built on the first hill, Mount Zion. That's what it was called when David conquered the city. And then a nearby, next, next to Mount Zion, was Mount Moriah, where they believed that Abraham had sacrificed Isaac. And on Mount Moriah is where they built the temple. And eventually, as biblical history proceeds, it all together gets called Mount Zion. And so originally you had David's palaces and throne on Mount Zion and the temple on Mount Moriah, but eventually Mount Zion becomes the name for the whole area, so it really represented the leadership of God's people. And you have Mount Zion in this picture in verse 12, basically as a ruin. The city will be plowed under and overgrown by the woods, Micah says. It'll be lost and forgotten. That's the effect of rejecting God's word. That's the effect of leaders that lead for themselves and not for God and for the people. Disorder, chaos, and ruin. But this is when the good news comes. See, you have to look at the bad news first, but then the good news comes, and that's what chapter 4 is about, because the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4 go together. That's one of, this is one of those many places where the chapter division actually comes at a bad place. Because the good news is that there are coming what Micah calls the latter days. 
or some translation put it, the last days. Here's an interpretation code for you. When the Bible talks about the last day, it's almost always referring to the day of the final consummation when Christ returns, the second coming, when history is over. But when it talks about the last days, plural, it's talking about the time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Christ comes to establish his kingdom at the beginning of the last days or the latter days, and then he brings it to fulfillment at the end of the period of the latter days or the last days. And so this, what we're looking at in the beginning of chapter 4, is the church. The church between the day of Pentecost when it is born and the day of the second coming of Christ. And it's a glorious picture. It says that Mount Zion, again, what else would you call the people of God in the days of Micah? Mount Zion would be elevated instead of being not only you know, a small mountain among the mountains of Israel, but it would be the highest mountain of all mountains. And of course, he's speaking spiritually. This is a metaphor. And he says, this is the mountain where the Lord will speak himself. No longer do we need to rely on the word of others, but the Lord will speak and peoples, he says, shall flow to it. It's the word for a river. And so it's like he sees a river of people flowing to the top of a mountain instead of flowing down from the mountain. And that river is made up of people, not just of Jews, but he focuses on the fact that this is a multinational river of people. Many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Why are they coming? What's driving them? They're climbing the highest mountain of mountains, To get to the top, they're hungry for something, they're passionate for something, they're joyful to receive something. What is it that they may teach, that he, the Lord himself, may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths? For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. When the Messiah comes, the Lord himself will come and he will establish a kingdom by his word. And that word, that kingdom will be guided by his word. And it will be driven to advance to the four corners of the earth by his word. Micah goes on to say, this mountain is where the Lord not only will speak, but he will reign. It says, he shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away. He will be the Lord of lords and the king of kings and perfect justice will be established. And the result is that this is the mountain where we as sinners will find peace. He says, On this mountain they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. The only cure for war in the world is the truth that comes from the heavenly Mount Zion that Micah describes. I grew up during the height of the Cold War when we had to keep building bigger and bigger bombs and accumulating more and more bombs because our enemy was building bigger and bigger bombs and accumulating more and more bombs. It was a scary time realizing that somebody could push a button somewhere and wipe civilization out of existence. 
But as long as sinners are still an authority, as long as the unregenerate in particular are still an authority, there is always going to be an escalation of arms. The Bible says that government was given the sword by God. And I'm here to say this morning that for my lifetime anyway, up until now, I've been pretty glad that our government has a bigger sword than the sword of our enemies. Because, as Micah has described, this is the nature of our enemies. The chaos and destruction that comes from the world. But when sinners are born again, they're given new hearts and new minds, and they begin to long for and live by God's word, then there can be true disarmament. Resources that are used to destroy enemies can be converted into productive resources for the good of humanity. Swords can be turned into plowshares and pruning hooks. And when that happens, real contentment and peace and security happens. That's what Micah describes in the next verse. It says, They shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. Sitting contentedly under your own vine and your own fig tree was an image for the people of Israel of peace and prosperity. You see, when selfishness and greed are taken away, coveting stops. And when coveting stops, war stops. Because war is driven by coveting. Being content with the vine and fig tree that God has given you, and living in the midst of people who are also content with what God has given them, and living in the midst of people who live to serve and love others, that's where disarmament can take place. That's where peace happens. That's where true prosperity happens. It's what began to happen on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 4, verses 33 and 34. And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. I love how it puts those two things together. They are testifying to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and they were doing so with their words, certainly, but also by the fact that there was no needy person among them. Every man sitting contentedly under his vine and fig tree, living in the midst of a people that live to protect the rights of others, to pursue true biblical justice and serve the needs and love of others. That's why Jesus said to us, you, the church, my church, will be the light on a hill, the city on a hill, the light of the world. The glorified Mount Zion, the highest of all mountains, where people from all nations will stream to hear and to live by the word of the king himself. This recent election has reminded us that we live in a very cynical age. No one, it seems, has much trust for presidents or congressmen or judges or police or military leaders, or preachers, or Bible teachers, or elders. It's 
good that we're celebrating Christmas. Because Christmas is when we remember, when we celebrate, when we rejoice that the true prophet, priest, and king has come. And he has established the only true kingdom of true justice for all people. And how did he establish that kingdom? The kingdom of justice? How was the kingdom of justice established? By the greatest act of injustice that humankind has ever seen. When the only truly innocent one, God's Son, was proclaimed guilty and punished by a horrific death. When the only one who ever deserved the full rights of life and family and property and reputation had all of those things ripped away, even fellowship with God himself, so that we who are guilty and deserve none of those things could be justly forgiven, justly because he paid the price for us and be treated for all eternity from now on forever as though we are innocent and 